Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home. This is Francesco podcasting from the headquarters of my company, Analytics Technologies. In uh, this episode, I would like to speak about a very interesting topic, which is clustering. Now, of course, clustering is a pretty generic topic. It's quite, quite mature in the community. It has been used for uh, you know, what people usually refer to as unsupervised learning. But specifically to clustering, I would like to explain a, just one aspect of clustering, which is uh, Markov clustering. And uh, this is an algorithm which goes under the name of MCL, uh, which stands indeed for Markov clustering, that allows to uh, allows a data scientist to detect communities or detect groups of, uh, let's say, homogeneous elements in, uh, in a population. Uh, now, of course, this is quite generic, and uh, I will use this episode to clarify what Markov clustering is, where can it be used, and of course, what are the properties and the benefits that one might take from using this specific algorithm. Now, back in the time, um, Facebook AI chief Jan LeCun has said, if intelligence is a cake, the bulk of the cake is unsupervised learning, the icing on the cake is supervised learning, and the cherry on top of the cake is reinforcement learning. Definitely, this statement is quite interesting, but this famous st uh, statement highlights how humans rely mainly on unsupervised learning to make sense of the world around them. And so, if you look at the, the way a, a kid learns from the world, is pretty much unsupervised, except for these few episodes in which you know the parents are telling the kids, hey, that's a cat, or hey, this is a dog, or hey, this is fire, so don't touch. All the rest, probably on fire, that does work like that, but <laughs> I mean, kids usually touch the fire and, and get hurt. So, you know, for many, what I want to say is that for many situations, humans uh, who are supposed to be the most intelligent organisms in, in this planet, at least, do not use supervised learning. Or, well, they use supervised learning only uh, for specific tasks, for example, when they go to school. All the rest is, in fact, learned by in unsupervised fashion. And so, the philosophical question that many research scientists are, are asking themselves is, how doable is unsupervised learning for a machine? Because if, it's, if this is you know, the most common way of learning for humans, it must be, there must be a reason. It must be powerful. And in fact, it is powerful because you know, the idea of unsupervised learning is that you don't need any training data set. You don't need any training data, in fact, to, uh, to, to train any model. You just do it by experience. And now, of course, in the real world, this is not always possible. At least from a computational perspective, this is extremely difficult. Because you know, that's the main reason why uh, deep neural networks work the way they do, is because they are, they are supported by a, a, an impressive amount of data that the neural network is fed with uh, in order to learn, in order to tune the parameters, and then learn what we say learning something, in fact, is just a function minimization. 
Now, when we talk about unsupervised learning, in fact, we most of the time we are talking about clustering. And clustering can be certainly considered one of the most useful tools to learn interesting patterns from data in unsupervised fashion. Whether one likes to automatically categorize emails or detect different types of customers via an application, clustering is most of the times the way to go. And this approach consists of dividing the entire data set at hand into groups or you know, so-called clusters such that objects belonging to the same cluster are generally more similar than the items that belong to a different cluster. And this similarity is, of course, calculated according to specific metrics that, of course, can change with the problem at hand. Now, clustering algorithms, for example, k-means, hierarchical clustering, or db-scan, if you're not familiar with these you know, methodologies, there is a plenty of documentation out there, plenty of books that, uh, that, or tutorial that can teach you what k-means, hierarchical clustering, or db-scan uh, method, methods do. Well, these are frequently used by data scientists in exploratory data analysis of tabular data. But another type of data that in fact is very common, especially in the real world, is not tabular. You know, that's common for data scientists, but the world works with networks. And so in fact, the network, the concept of the network or the graph is a much more common concept in the real world. In the network analysis jargon, Clustering network data is usually referred to as community detection, you know, because the community, in fact, resembles this concept of group, where, for example, in a social network, people who, are, who belong to the same communities because they share something. So they are kind of similar with respect to some kind of metric. For example, they are all going to the same uh, club, or they, are, they all like the same music, or they are all blondes, or they or uh, they are all black. So, in fact, this you know community detection and clustering are two similar concepts, and uh, in fact, they can be interchangeably used when we talk about communities or clusters in different fields, for example, in networks or in tabular tabular data. The purpose of this episode, of course, is to unravel some of the most important properties of uh, a very specific algorithm, which I said is called Markov Clustering, or MCL. This algorithm has been primarily designed to perform community detection, but it can be used to cluster tabular data too, as it will be clear in the, at the end of this episode, hopefully. Now, there is, of course, a much more technical explanation of the MCL algorithm, which is provided in the references in the show notes of this episode. There is also an application of the method to uh, cluster biological sequences uh, on the blog post of this episode, which will also be reported in the show notes. And so if you want to try this yourself uh, in a hands-on fashion, you can just uh, copy and paste the code that is associated to this episode and, uh, and just you know, run your MCL algorithm on your laptop. So let me refresh now some of the concepts that you need to follow this episode. I want to make it self-contained, so no extreme, extremely difficult concepts are required, and whatever you need to know, I will try to explain before we get to the, uh, to the conclusion, for sure. So some concept of graph theory that will become useful to understand the way MCL uh, works. We start from graphs and random walks. Now, 
as uh, I already mentioned in uh, in another episode and uh, and also in another post, so we'll report this all these links in the show notes of this episode. Many systems in nature can be represented as graphs, which are pretty much you know simple animals <laughs> because they are just composed by a set of nodes that are connected by edges. Now, the most familiar example of graphs is probably the one that you use every day. I might think of a social networks, you know, Facebook, Twitter. And uh, here, users are represented as nodes, while an edge that connects any two nodes represents the fact that the two users or the two nodes are interacting with each other. It could be that, for example, they are sending text messages to each other or they are calling each other or they're just friends. So the, just the fact of being a friend is it means that we are connected or the two nodes, the two friends are connected. So one of the common approaches to analyze graphs and, um, and of course, derive insights from simulations is the so-called random walk. This is a concept that is being extensively used in graph theory. So what does random walk do? Well, uh, an example that clarifies what random walk means is the following. Suppose that there is a tourist who is starting a trip from, from his hometown or from her hometown and is going to visit several cities. Now you can think of these cities as the nodes of a graph which are connected by an edge whenever it is possible to reach one city from the other, right? So if two cities are not reachable from, you know, directly, there would be no edge. Otherwise, there would be a one. So let's assume also that the tourist is amazed by surprises in the sense that she doesn't plan. And so she hasn't planned any trip in advance. So she just randomly picks the next city based on, I don't know, flipping a coin and decides which city to go from, of course, the possible the cities that are possibly reachable from the state, from the, from the city she is in. Now, by a mathematical point of view, the trip of the tourist is called stochastic process, which is, in fact, is called a random walk on the graph, because this tourist will land to a city and then randomly go to the next city without any um, probability that, is, that has been like a pre-calculated or decide previously, right? She just flips a coin and decides where, which city to go next. So this is completely random, right? So that's why it's called a random walk. Now, a natural question that, may, that you may ask is, uh, in the long term, which cities will be visited next by our tourists? Now, as an answer, you can say, hey, but you just said it is random. Well, not really. Because the answer, to answer such a question, well, it depends on how the cities are connected to each other. And so what we call the topology of the graph, the topology of the network. So if there are some cities that are more connected, of course, just by chance, there is a higher probability that these cities will be reachable much more frequently, right? And so the topology of the network is, in fact, dictating and influencing the frequency of visiting each of these cities. So, for example, if cities form so-called well-separated clusters, which are also called connected components in graph theory, and the tourist starts her trip inside one of these clusters, it is very likely that she would never be able to reach any city 
in the other clusters. So she would stay stuck in this connected component, in this group of cities heavily connected. And she will keep, you know, touring in this, in this small world. And this, this could be a problem sometimes, you know, because if she wants to, for example, explore the world, you know, and she says, hey, I'm going to do it randomly. So I know that maybe sooner or later she will end up to any city, you know, because she's using randomness as the decision, as the way to decide where to go. Well, the topology will tell her a different story because the topology of the network, the way the cities are connected, will prevent her from traveling anywhere. And so simulating a random walk on a graph represents exactly the idea behind the MCL algorithm. If you understood how the random walks concept works, you are in fact also very close to understanding what the MCL algorithm does. So, the purpose of the MCL algorithm is to find a cluster structure by just simulating a random walk on a graph until it reaches equilibrium. And so, the first step one needs to take is to obtain this graph, you know, like the network, like the topology. In the case of network data, a graph is readily available and the only task that one has to perform is to compute what we call the adjacency or affinity matrix that describes the network. So such a matrix is defined in a way that each element of the matrix is equal to one if there is an edge from uh, vertex i and vertex j. So imagine there is a, a, a matrix, a two-dimensional matrix. You have the nodes on the on the on the x-axis and the nodes on the y-axis and of course all possible combinations of course on the diagonal you probably have all ones because a node is always connected to itself but if two nodes i and j are connected well then the cell ij in the matrix in this affinity matrix will be equal to one and otherwise it will be zero to indicate that indeed there is no connection between these two nodes in the case of tabular data for example, data arranged in rows and columns, which I repeat is the most common or one of the most common format, data formats for data scientists. Imagine CSV files or HSV files, you know, all these tables, Excel uh, tables and stuff like that. Now, in the case of tabular data, data that are arranged in rows and columns, one has to construct first a similarity matrix by computing all pairwise similarities between all existing records. And this can be very time-consuming, of course. If you have millions of records, good luck calculating billions of similarities. But at the end, such similarity matrix re represents a weighted graph in which the nodes represent the observations and the edges have weights corresponding to the similarity between uh, any two nodes. Now, by properly scaling either the adjacency matrix or the similarity matrix, one can obtain the so-called Markov matrix, which is a matrix of probabilities that represents the chances for every node to reach any other node it is connected to in the graph. And finally, once the Markov matrix has been built, well, then the random walk on the graph is simulated by simply alternating two operators, which are called the expansion and the inflation operator. So what does the expansion and inflation do? Well, expansion allows the random walker take higher length paths, for example, large number of steps from one node to the other. Indeed, expansion, you know, it, because it takes higher length paths, it goes far. While inflation 
changes the transition probabilities by favoring the more probable walks over less probable ones. Now, since higher length paths are more common within the same clusters than between different clusters, the combination of these two operations, expansion and inflation, will have the effect of boosting the probabilities of walks inside each cluster and reduce the walks between the clusters. Now, you get what we, uh, what we reach here. Such a behavior will emerge in the long term, and of course the iteration of expansion and inflation will lead to the separation of the graph into different connected components, which in fact is like clustering. And so, unlike many clustering algorithms that need the user to specify the expected number of clusters beforehand, think about k-means, for example. You have to specify the number of clusters you expect from the data, which is kind of, you know, biting your tail because you don't know. You, don't, you cannot know what's the perfect number of clusters for any specific data set that you have. Well, in this case, in fact, you don't need to, to assign a, or pre-assign this k, you know, the number of clusters that you expect from the data. You can just do it automatically by iterating expansion and inflation operations and um, providing a partition of the data into clusters that naturally arises from the graph topology itself. So in this case, in the case of the MCL algorithm, is the network topology that is kind of suggesting you hey, I think that this is the number of, the optimal number of clusters that you should expect from the data. Now, if you want to put all these things in practice, there is on the blog post of this episode, again, reporting the show notes, um, there is an algorithm and uh, a, a code snippet that allows you to, you know, load some network data and, uh, and play with it and so run the MCL algorithm and finally draw the clusters that the MCL algorithm found for you without specifying any hyperparameters, okay? Now, this is very interesting. And uh, so that's why I kind of wanted to summarize this under the suggestion of a friend from LinkedIn. Uh, so thank you. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, if you have other topics, of course, that you would like to suggest and uh, you would like me to explain on this, on this show, uh, do not hesitate to contact us. I would be very glad to uh, listen to your suggestions. And of course, uh, most of the time is things that I like to speak about. So uh, please don't be shy. In addition to this, please subscribe to our newsletter. It's a, a newsletter that you can find on the amethix.com blog, uh, which is amethix.com is our main website that supports this episode and this uh, and this podcast. In fact, in this newsletter, you can find basically you will receive uh, insights about machine learning and artificial intelligence, and probably the best selection in the field. Uh, spam is not included, so really don't worry to to put your email on the website we don't like spam and uh, and we just deliver content and uh, you're ready to unsubscribe whenever you want and uh, and it's free of charge i mean seriously it's free of charge you get all this insight straight to the inbox i suggest that you actually read that because it's very interesting stuff in this episode we have seen how a community detection algorithm known as markov clustering can be constructed by combining simple concepts like, you know, 
random walk, graphs, similarity matrix. These are all basic concepts, very mature now. And there is the mathematics that describes these things is very mature, is very well known. In addition to this, I also highlighted one, how can one build similarity graphs and then run a community detection algorithm on such a graph, such as Markov clustering or other state-of-the-art methods to find clusters, not just in networks, but in tabular data, which is known to be a non-trivial task. I hope this was interesting and uh, I'm looking forward to the next episode. Ciao. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.